Hello and welcome to the Hacking State Podcast. This is your host, Alex Mershak. With me today is Michael Millerman. For those of you who are familiar with my previous work, uh, Michael and I spoke about two years ago. Uh, at the time, his school was sort of a fledgling uh, intellectual internet project. Uh, he was sort of just starting out. And so we had a long and, and really well-received discussion on Leo Strauss. And ever since then, I've been just dying to bring him back. At the time, we actually did a little bit of a teaser uh, towards the end of it about his expertise in a, um, well, previously obscure, now I would say almost notorious uh, Russian political philosopher named Alexander Dugan, who we might get into a little bit today, um, which Millerman has studied himself um, and done actually a lot of in, in, individual uh, work on doing translations, as well as spoken to Dugan um, and continued to do scholarship uh, related to him uh, on his channel and elsewhere. So um, that is a little bit of background on uh, Michael Millerman. But uh, Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back. Thanks for, for coming on. So as I said already in the introduction, uh, when we spoke last time, uh, I believe you were pretty early in your journey in starting a philosophy school. Um, so you've created the Millerman School, which I, I would say, honestly, it, it, you know, and, and again, uh, I've moved on to sort of a different area of my life. I'm, I'm sort of more tech focused now. Um, but uh, I come out of a political philosophy background. You come out of a political philosophy background. And so that is sort of our shared interest. And I would say that by my view, the Millerman School is probably the most valuable um, offer that there is out there out, outside of any academic setting and, and probably more valuable than many academic settings, if we're being totally honest. Um, so I just wanted to say that I'm really impressed with the school that you've built, with the offerings that you've made, as well as with the cohort of, um, of students that you have. I mean, I'm sure some of your students uh, don't wish to be identified, but I think it's pretty clear um, if you look at, you know, the recommendations that people have made and the kind of people moving through your school, um, that there's some pretty high level individuals uh, going to you for philosophical advice, for access to the great wisdom of the Western tradition. And so I just wanted to ask you, when you started the school, did you think it was going to work? Yes, but I didn't have a vision at first of what that meant beyond a pretty minimal criterion, which was this. So I was already out of the University of Toronto. I was in my intermediary phase. I was actually working as a copywriter and doing private tutoring. And so my private tutoring, I was preparing like sometimes, let's say between four and five hours for one hour of private tutoring, which was an imbalance, you know, it was not sustainable. Mm -hmm. So the first opportunity to teach at scale that I had was with Justin Murphy, who has otherlife.co. I think is his site and also indie thinkers. That's his two, uh, two brands. I think he's merging them or something like that, but yes, I have to give him credit because it was his invitation to teach a course on Leo Strauss that showed me in principle, the scalability of the teaching. So I could still put the same amount of time into prep more or less, but reach more people at once than I was doing. So the success criterion for the school for me at first was just, can I continue to teach what I want to teach, the way I want to teach it to groups larger than one person at a time in order for it to be financially sustainable, in order for me to make enough money to be able to dedicate my time to doing it. And 
surprisingly at first, again, you know, when I didn't have grand expectations, I just wanted to meet a bare minimum mm -hmm. uh, that worked. And I was pretty happy and excited about that. So the first course I launched in the school was Leo Strauss's on tyranny. And the, you know, it's sort of a happy accident in my view in retrospect that I started with that course, because I think it has a kind of renewed significance and a special place. And it's not the obvious first book to teach in an online school of political philosophy, I would say. But the reason is that I had been tutoring on tyranny to a small group and I used my basic notes and research that I've been doing for the private tutoring and built it into this video course format that sold. I was very happy. And once I had the proof of concept, I was able to just layer on one course after another. So I have to say that in hindsight, you know, a school that teaches Heidegger and not only being in time, but also works like contributions to philosophy of the event and the black notebooks, it's not a self-evident proposition that that would be successful enough to become sustainable. So I'm very mm -hmm. grateful that it has been, I've had a chance to meet a lot of great students and especially important for me, I've been able to teach the way that I would want to, even though academia was a closed door for me because of my work on Dugan. So knock on wood, it's been great. As I say, my initial expectations were modest. At some point, I well exceeded the modest expectations that I had. And now I'm at the stage in the development of the school where I can think about what's next, what else is possible, how can it develop, what should it really be aiming at now that it's demonstrated its viability. Yeah, that's really wonderful to hear. I mean, uh, I saw a tweet that you sent out earlier today where you were, uh, you know, encouraging people to begin putting themselves out on video um, for very similar reason, which was that, you know, when you first started out, you weren't sure that it was going to be well received. Obviously, everyone is, uh, well, for the most part, people are not naturally talented at this kind of thing. And so people are uh, worried about how they're going to, to look or how they're going to behave on camera. And it is an acquired skill that you get used to over time. Um, and uh, you were just putting out a little bit of encouragement there for other individuals who might think that it, it's not viable for them to grow a business model out of doing these online activities, um, that uh, it is possible, but you're never going to know until you get started. Absolutely. I recommend people who are listening to this, if you have something that you want to teach that you think you know, or that you just want to experiment with potentially leveraging your knowledge or passion on the side, video is a great thing to experiment with because it's the kind of thing that even if it doesn't go well or doesn't work out, even the failed experiment will teach you a lot along the way. And there's no reason why it has to fail because you can iterate, you can get better being in front of the camera, you get better. The look and feel of the presentation can evolve over time, but it's like anything, you know, the sooner you begin, the sooner you can develop the skills. And something I love about video again, for me, I feel strongly about it because it's what allowed me to leverage the teaching. You know, I mean, it's what allowed me to teach. Like teaching is a big part of my life. The income that I make from the school is a big part of my income. And I'm able to do it only because I got used to, I mean, I still get nervous at times when I go on camera in a live mm. setting or when I teach and tutor, but it doesn't matter. The point is you can reach people and people want to learn. They want to be taught. They, there are a million different reasons why it could be helpful. I'll give you a very quick example of how I see opportunities for people to start to incorporate video. I mean, just because I see it doesn't mean it would work and doesn't mean that they have to want to do it, but people should be aware of the option. Uh, I have, you know, I, I started jujitsu about a year ago and, uh, you know, there are jujitsu instructors in the gym who they show their moves. They're very good at showing their moves. Okay, fine. There are a lot of online jujitsu instructors, 
but it doesn't matter. If a person has a jujitsu gym, they have 20, 30 students who go to them regularly. If a student misses a class, but the professor has recorded a move and shared it with his students, he's in the realm of using video to grow his business. Even if it's just a value proposition for members of the gym, you know, you miss a class, no problem. We have a video of the basic moves, not a video taught by some random instructor, but by your instructor, the one you're going to see in person in a couple of days. Uh, or somebody I was talking to who has very area specific expertise in, let's say, without naming the field, they're like a very expert in their field in some domain. And they were one of the early experts in that field. And I know for a fact, this person possesses so much knowledge that would be helpful to anybody looking to get established in the field. Well, okay. There are a couple of ways you can communicate that knowledge one-on-one in a written form, not at all, or at somehow, somehow like at scale, a course that introduces people to the basics of how to get established in that field. So I'm a proponent of video courses because of how they've benefited me and my students. You know, the, so many people, I had a great conversation this morning with a student in the school. Uh, may they all have the experience that he had because he said this has been immensely valuable for him. The courses on the Republic, for example, that then he goes into as offline reading groups and has taken what he learned from my course and shares it with the people in his offline group. So it's been like a blessing all around. And I think that there's no reason why that should be unique to me or to the other people currently doing it. So hopefully somebody is, uh, even if one or two people picked up on that tweet or on this conversation and are inspired to start working with video, it's positive, you know, it's positive. Mm. I'll even say one other, uh, one other example. Actually, I was thinking today after I wrote that post and I thought, okay, some people like anonymity and they may feel like video is not anonymous for the obvious reason that you expose your face. Okay, fine. Number one, a person could do that just for their own benefit. So they learn to be in front of the camera and you can always pull the audio from it. If you record audio, you don't also have video, but if you record video, you also have audio. But there's also, I saw uh, recently one online figure is he goes by the name anti-profit. Someone sent me his videos. He talks about Dugan in one of his short reels and he has the best of both worlds, video and anonymity, because he wears a mask in his videos. So even so, you still get the gestures, you still get a sort of connection, and he's able to protect his privacy and uh, maintain his anonymity. So there are a lot of different ways to go about it if you're creative. So one of the things that uh, I continue to uh, be battling all the time, especially given that uh, I sort of spend most of my time walking in tech circles these days, is the value of philosophy. And it's one of those things that there's always this uh, perennial debate about um, whether the philosophers should make themselves and their natures known to the broad public, whether philosophy is even an activity for the many in the first place. Um, And if someone is going to proffer a defense of philosophy, a defense of the value of philosophy, or a defense of philosophy as a good in itself, independent of what other externalities it, it gets you. Um, that is a question that to some extent needs some answering. So I was just wondering, what are the kind of students that you find come into your school and what are they looking for? It's a great uh, question. And it's also something that was a big eye opener for me because when I started the school, I did not have a student in mind. I didn't have an audience in mind. I just knew I want to teach Strauss, so I'm going to teach Strauss and hopefully to attract somebody. I want to teach Plato, Heidegger, I'm going to do that and hopefully attract somebody. What I found, to my surprise initially, 
was that most of the people coming to the school, let's say two categories. One of them is the major one, but first I'll do the minor one. So there were some people who were later in life, past their professional career, more or less retired and looking to reconnect with an old passion for philosophy or just looking for some deeper meaning in their lives, or now they have the time and the leisure to read what they think are the key books of the tradition, that kind of thing. So there were some people who were retired. There were some people who were in the universities. So their teaching is their profession and the coursework helped them better understand what it is that they were going to be teaching. Mm. For example, okay, they were, they needed sort of a training and better understanding what they themselves were going to be representing as teachers. Okay. Roughly, but by far the main category of students were people in their thirties and forties in the tech sector, software engineers, founders, in some cases, funders, uh, investors. And this was totally surprising to me. I didn't know anything about that world. Okay. VC finance, tech startups. I just didn't know anything about it coming from academia. I wasn't familiar with it. Uh, and nevertheless, you know, person after person was coming to study being in time with me with a background in software engineering or uh, machine learning or somehow the world of tech startups. So that was the first big thing I noticed about the composition of the students who were attracted to the school. And gradually I would interview them and ask them, you know, what, what attracted you to the school? What are you looking for? Why do you want to study Heidegger? Why do you want to study Plato? Like, how did any of this get on your map in the first place? And there are also some common themes. It's not mm -hmm. identical for everybody, but there are common themes. So some people are concerned about the crisis of higher education and the way that spills out into the culture wars generally and into the woke mind virus and all of that. And they're not going to go back to university. They're out of university and they sort of have some sense. I mean, they're intelligent. They have the time to dedicate to the serious study of something that they consider important. And they have reason to believe, maybe because they are familiar with Peter Thiel and they heard through him Straussian moments. So Strauss must be important and Schmidt must be important. Or in some other way, in some other circle, Heidegger's name came up or something like that. So they're not hearing these people's names for the first time, but they didn't really go deep into them at any other point. Maybe they read, okay, like a chapter on... Heidegger and Nietzsche in an existentialism textbook at university 15 years ago, but now they want to know what it's all about. So that's been surprisingly common and extremely encouraging to me and very positive. I would say another thing, maybe one of the reasons for the attraction to Heidegger is because he seems to go beyond, he seems to be able to rigorously explain or present a way of thinking that is not merely technical, but that is still deep, profound, precise, rigorous, penetrating, and all of these kinds of things. So people who are really used to a programmatic way of thinking, they encounter Heidegger and they're blown away by what's there and don't have a clear way of making sense of it. Cause it's like, it's still thinking, but it's not calculative thinking, you know, it's something rich that they're encountering maybe for the first time or beginning to understand for the first time. So there's been a big interest in Heidegger and the Plato, I would say, the draw to Plato, many cases like this, okay, people begin to become familiar with the fact that there are gaps in their knowledge of the foundations for some reason. Again, they heard, they hear an argument or they, I like to use the latest example of uh, uh, Naib Bukele, 
the the El yes. Salvadorian leader because his Twitter profile says philosopher king. So right. if you're like there's an effective leader, there's a lot of buzz around him. You go to his profile says philosopher king. You may know that philosopher king is a figure from the republic and be like, man, I'm I'm I've had enough of just like loose associations with you know cave allegory philosopher king. I want to now like actually read the book cover to cover, make sense of it, see why he's invoking it. You know what I'm saying? Like. There, well, there, there might be there might be something people. there, you know, given that yeah. uh, this powerful person has adopted it as their moniker. Exactly. Or the cave allegory. Everybody somehow somewhere encounters something about it. Mm-hmm. But a few people also feel that extra additional urge to like get it, get the whole story. You know, it's it's in the Republic. Right. I've never read the Republic. Everybody roughly knows that Plato is so important for Western civilization, Western philosophy. So some some group of people who come to the school, they're like, I felt it was time. I'm ready for the foundations, but I need a guide. And very often, this is another pitch for the video. Very often, they say they found me on YouTube. They say, we found your Plato lecture, your Heidegger lecture, your Strauss lecture, your interview with somebody or somebody else. And you know what? We thought, we want the foundations. We want a guide. We heard you speaking about something, and it was like comprehensible and interesting. And they, then they become members of the Millerman School. So YouTube has been a big part of how people who have the initial motivation connect it with me and my school. That's where they find me. So yeah, tech people interested in foundational thinking. I would also say that there's a, there's a sense among some of the people in the startup world that mm-hmm. what they are doing is akin to what philosophers do because philosophers, they shape society and politics by going beyond it in some way. And I think there are founders and funders and startup people who see themselves sort of, uh, you know, equivalently. Like they're bringing something new into the world. They're inventing something new. They're one step ahead. And or the technologies that they're dealing with have that kind of role and function. And so they're attracted to the great philosophers who are like the great founders in some way. I mean, even the figure of a founder is a figure in political philosophy. Obviously, we talk about the founder of laws or the founder of political communities, but I think it's like an easy isomorphism, you know? I I, I think the founder founder is a sort of uh, generic archetype, right? It's the lawgiver, the one who reestablishes society on a new order. And fundamentally, every ambitious founder is trying to do that in some way. For sure. I mean, it's it's a archetype that resonates. And if you think, where does it resonate somehow most archetypally outside of the software world itself in the history of political philosophy? Hmm. You know, and Heidegger inaugurating another beginning of philosophy, you know, the other figures of the founder that you get from the tradition. So all of those little uh, things line up. And I guess that's my best explanation in brief for why it has been people from the software and tech world. I mean, they also have, they also have the ability to pay, which is important. So, you know, a high school student can't necessarily get uh, a course on Heidegger if he doesn't have the money. Although I should say that at several times I had offered steep discounts for students in order to control for that. But still, I mean, no matter what I've done, the, what I just described is the kind of student who's been most attracted to the school. And lately, the school is really leaning into that to try to find people like that, find people who are trying to understand the crisis of Western civilization, the crisis of the institutions, the meaning of new technologies, 
the significance of non-technological thinking, which doesn't have to be just ungrounded spiritual woo-woo, but can be very extraordinarily rigorous, like mm -hmm. in Heidegger's work, methodologically precise and all the rest of it. So as I say, at the start, I did not have a plan and I did not have an expectation. This is an empirical observation. And it's one that's now part of the, uh, I would say, brand identity of the school. And now it's something I'm deliberately targeting and hoping to find more people like that because it's been win-win for, uh, for both of us. I will ask you a question now that I think is um, a little bit of a given, uh, uh, but I would like to draw your answer. So one of the um, interesting puzzles that comes up, I spoke earlier about the need to defend philosophy, you know, especially among my peer group. I get people saying things like, um, you know, you should just be studying empirical subjects because all of this philosophical stuff is too, it's too airy. You know, there's not enough um, guardrails in terms of keeping the rigor in the thinking. Um, another common refrain is that uh, I won't I won't say the name of the person who tweeted this, but to paraphrase is that, you know, these books are old and they're sort of falling out of fashion, which which, by the way, is totally in dispute. But this is the supposition that they're falling out of fashion. Uh, for a reason, which is that, you know, we should be reading more contemporary texts, or we should be reading subjects that are uh, refinements of philosophy, right? Like, in a way, um, natural science, um, uh, political science, economics, these all sprout, spring from philosophy. This is something that you talked about at length um, with, uh, with Alexander Dugan in your interview with him, about how philosophy is sort of the root of all of the other subjects. Um and so I wanted to ask you, is Western philosophy dead or alive? Well, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, not a straightforward question for me. And so here's how I start to think about a question like that. Okay. Dugan has a book, his second Heidegger book. It's called Martin Heidegger, The Possibility of Russian Philosophy. And he says in that book that for liberals, there's no such thing as Russian philosophy. There's just philosophy because philosophy is a human activity and humans are humans. They're not like segregated into peoples and races in any essential or fundamental sense. What's important is the underlying universal human dimension. So for liberals, Russian philosophy is, you don't even, it doesn't even make sense to say that philosophy is just philosophy. For nationalists, he says, and for conservatives, Russian philosophy is a fact, he says, because it's like they take for granted the existence of a, of a uniquely Russian tradition of thinking, one that is non-Western, since part of what it is to identify as a Russian nationalist or Russian conservative mm -hmm. is to identify yourself in opposition to the West. So that's for them, it's like an established fact. And what really attracted me to Dugan's book, among other things, is that for him, it's a question. He says both the liberals and the nationalists slash conservatives, they're failing to see that it's an open question, the possibility of Russian philosophy, which first you'd have to even identify what does it mean for philosophy to be or not to be Russian? Okay, so similarly with the question of Western philosophy, you know, what does it mean for philosophy to be or not to be Western? So something that I teach a lot, and again, I have to give credit here to Dugan because it's Dugan's version of Heidegger, Dugan's presentation of Heidegger, that put 
a certain set of Heidegger's books front and center for me in a way that other presentations of Heidegger didn't. So the one that I have at the top of my book pile right here, Contributions to Philosophy of the Event, which I teach in a school and which besides Plato's Republic is probably my most annotated book uh, at the moment and over the last 10 years. So if you take this as an example, Contributions to Philosophy of the Event, Heidegger says, Western philosophy has come to an end, but it's in a transitional moment. It's on a transition towards another beginning of philosophy. And Heidegger himself is the figure who inaugurates both the transition and the another inception. And in my view, he's got a very compelling statement of that whole dynamic. So for him, Western philosophy is the quote unquote episode between Plato and Nietzsche. The transition is reflecting on the meaning of that episode, the meaning of that history. And the other beginning of philosophy is seeing what was left out of the first beginning and appropriating it thoughtfully in a new speaking, roughly. That probably wouldn't be totally clear to everybody, but it doesn't matter. So the point there is that he has a well-defined uh, beginning, middle, and end to Western philosophy, as well as a future for philosophy. Left Heideggerians, in my view, took over his model of a beginning, middle, end of philosophy, but they stopped at the end of philosophy. So all of their thinking and working is working within the end and at the end of philosophy. They don't have the figure of another beginning like he has. Whereas Dugan is somebody who incorporated into his own work, Heidegger's notion of another beginning of philosophy. And then sort of adjacent to the dispute over the re-inception of philosophy in Heidegger, you also have people like Strauss, Leo Strauss, as someone who's so important to, to me, equally important to me as is Heidegger, equally important to the pedagogy of the school and all the rest of it. And Strauss sort of doesn't map onto that fully because he rejects the premise of a beginning and middle and end to philosophy, since he doesn't think that philosophy is primarily historical, whereas for Heidegger, philosophy is primarily historical. So I would say that your, uh, your question about whether there's, um, you know, the status of Western philosophy today, it's an open, it's, it can be the kind of question that allows us to think philosophically about the meaning of thinking, the relationship of being and time, of thinking, being and time and all of these things. Because suddenly it allows us to put Heidegger, left and right interpretations of Heidegger, non-Heideggerian thought all on the table, and then to recognize that we're faced with a problem here that we're barely equipped to even work through. And that invites us hopefully to go deeper into it. And in doing so, we keep philosophy alive. You know, philosophy, the life of philosophy depends on there being people who put the question, the, the question above everything else, because to philosophize, I, I think this is accurately stated in Heidegger and other thinkers that I admire. Mm -hmm. Questioning is the driving force in philosophy. Questioning moves you deeper and deeper into domains that you haven't yet mastered, but as Heidegger puts it, they're concealed and nevertheless compelling. You know, so we haven't mastered them, but they're not trivial. In exposing ourselves to them through questioning, they exert a kind of hold on us. And that, you know, whether you call that being struck by wonder or whether you call it something else, that hold that the realm of the questionable has on us, it's the kind of thing that it doesn't leave you alone somehow. You know, it's always there with you for the rest of your life. And it's, uh, it's the basic element of a philosophical conversion. So I would also put it this way. I mean, I could say, I could point to my table and say, my pen is there, my cup is there, my books are there. 
but mm -hmm. Western philosophy or philosophy as such thinking as such, it's not just something you can point to and say it's there or it's not there. It's alive when we, when our questioning is alive, it's alive when our thinking is alive. So we don't have to say it's alive only when there's a tradition, a well acknowledged tradition that's in place and easily identifiable philosophy lives when we expose ourselves to the questions that that constitute it you know that realm of the concealed and nevertheless compelling so i would say in that sense yes i mean enough people i have seen with my own eyes and spoke to on my own you know uh directly who are drawn into understanding what is it to be what is it to be human what is it to be a people what is you know these fundamental questions which they very crucially they don't just treat as some automatic, you know, it's not just rote. You know, we could go through a bunch of quote unquote philosophical questions and treat them routinely and state them like automatically, you know, like just going through the motions. But there are still people for whom a lot is at stake and they're willing to put themselves at stake. And if you have that, then you have philosophy. That was very well said. One other response that I often find when those kinds of questions come up is a sort of dismissiveness or um, almost learned apathy where they'll say, um, well, those are, um, those are eternal questions. Nobody knows the answer. Nobody's going to have the final say on them. And so therefore those are questions I'm not going to uh, ask about. I'm not going to inquire for myself or for others about the meaning of being human, about the meaning of um, truth, justice, whatever it may be. Because mm -hmm. there are more definite questions that I know that I can at least achieve approximate answer to or work or functional answer to. Um, and I'm just curious how you think about that objection. Yeah, so it's a fair objection, actually. So I would say that there's a obligation that an instructor or somebody who's trying to introduce people to philosophy has a certain obligation. I think every philosopher has faced this obligation and has tried to do it in their own way. And the obligation is, is exactly what you say, to convey or to communicate or somehow to open a, open a path to philosophy. Dugan said it very beautifully in my uh, interview with him on my YouTube channel, where he said, philosophy is like a castle with no doors. And you know, how do you enter a castle with no doors? How do you get into this realm? So I'll tell you one of the ways that I see as being the most effective in my experience. One of the most effective ways in my experience is when people get the relevance of something, for example, in Plato, when they see that a question that they have about today's world or like an observation that they have about today's world, I've seen this a million times. Okay. That's also the thing that attracted me in some sense, initially to philosophy. When you see yeah. that, or somebody tells you, or you just happen to discover that something that was written 2000 years ago can speak to something that's happening today as though it was written today, not just written today, but written today by a profound observer of the state of affairs and of human nature. And that it's somehow even truer than other things that are said today. You know, that it kind of cuts through so much of the nonsense that's said today and gets to the heart of an issue. In my view, there are many, many points, for example, in Plato that do that. So it could be like, man, where do we even begin, you know? The first page of the Republic tells you that there's a tension between compulsion and persuasion. And, and uh, if you're like, wow, something that we, we see in politics all the time today is literally on the first page of like 
the book on politics in the Western world, maybe there's something else there that's interesting. Or an example that I've given in many conversations, even though maybe it seems trivial, maybe it doesn't, it never does in the conversations that I'm in. It might to people at first, which is why you always have to sort of find what resonates with people. In the Republic, where Socrates is talking about you lend a, you lend a weapon to your friend, excuse me, your friend lends a weapon to you, then he wants it back when he's not in his right state of mind. Mm. And you know that, for example, if you give it to him, he's going to go shoot up, a, you know, he's going to go whatever, right? Commit some sort of heinous crime. And he asks you, do you have it? You do have it, but you lie to him, you know? So it's like, is it always just to tell the truth? Here's a very clear, apparently very clear cut example where the just thing is to lie. And now everybody today thinks about, is it ever correct to lie? Because they believe their governments are lying to them all the time. And they think that transparency in government communications is the primary virtue, you know? Another thing is that that example shows you there's more to justice than property rights. Because after all, the weapon is the other guy's property, right. but you're withholding it from him and it's just to withhold it from him. So it seems. So it's like, again, that's not 500 pages into the Republic. That's like two or three pages into it. And suddenly it's raising questions about property rights, about the relationship between justice and truth telling. One of the videos I did on my channel, uh, I don't know, maybe a year ago now, uh, Jordan Peterson was posting that it's like, all you always tell the truth, always tell the truth. You should always tell the truth. And I'm like, okay, well, do we have any great examples of a case where not telling the truth is the right thing to do? Oh yeah, like two pages into Plato's Republic. <laughs> so that's just one example from one book. There are millions of them. The symposium, conversations about love, the beautiful dialogues on beauty where Socrates argues about what is beauty with a sophist. Then it has my favorite answer, my favorite wrong answer in all of Plato where Socrates asks the other character, what is the beautiful? And the other guy's like, so sure he can answer. And he says, the beautiful is a beautiful woman, which is a great answer, but it's wrong. And they walk through all of, you know, maybe the beautiful is the useful, maybe it's the pleasant. So the common theme I've had in all of the people who are like attracted to these authors eventually is that there's something that like anchors where they collapse the distance between the year, whatever year we're in now, what is it? 2023, 2023. and 2000 years ago, because yes. they find a question that just collapses the difference in time. It's like, Mm -hmm. suddenly you're in the exact same conversation. I give you, okay, I turned 40 this year, December 31st. So I'm thinking about aging. And there's a conversation again in book one of the Republic where Socrates asks the father of the household, Cephalus, like, what's the best thing that's that you've learned from aging so far? Right. So yeah. just example after example after example. It's a little bit later, I would say, that you go from that, the sort of like immediate questions that people can resonate with, gradually into the more apparently obscure dimensions of philosophizing where you start thinking about the relationship of non-being to being like it's not going to resonate with everybody as quickly if you start talking about being and beings and non-being and beingness for some people that's going to be like no thank you i'd rather just go plant something in my garden which is like hands-on and i can see it grow but for sure everybody thinks about love beauty justice war politics <laughs> lying truth-telling criminality and maybe that's why like the such a foundational introduction to philosophy as is plato's republic is embedded in a reflection on the basic uh, contours of political community as well it's easier it's an easier starting point for people than launching right into like the inner chambers yeah and uh so establishing sort of that personal connection initially and then from using that sort of wedge to expand out into the deeper questions. 
Yeah, uh, I think so because so, everybody has something. I mean, even somebody who's never thought about philosophy or never read a philosopher, couldn't name a philosopher. Mm. I think that everybody has entertained quote unquote philosophical questions in a, in a genuine way for themselves about life and death, about meaning, about the contrast between fam love of family and love of country. Like we all have those questions, but a person needs to be shown. I think that they have been articulated thoughtfully and intelligently by people we call philosophers in a way that can be helpful. Yeah. And when you brought up closing the gap um, between the present and the past, one of the things that I uh, always have to like, so philosophy is a lot of philosophy is remembering, um, remembering what you've forgotten. And one of the things that I always re-remember every time I go back to philosophy, um, I don't get, uh, I don't get to study it as much as I would like these days, uh, is that, uh, there's always a moment where I'm reading a text and it feels like I'm communing with an old friend. And then I remember, oh yes, these texts are my old friends from the past. They are dead philosophers and they are speaking to me in a way that, uh, you know, the very best of friends that I could have now, if they were here in this room, uh, that I would like to engage with them. And that's just one of the, uh, little intimate joys I'd say of reading philosophy. That's outside of any um, you know, objective criteria for material gain or otherwise. Um, it, it, it really is a kind of um, activity that is worth worth it for its own sake. And so therefore of the highest order. Absolutely. It's, uh, I think it's true when you are trying to introduce people again in a new way, right? And if people want to know what's in it for me, how's it useful or right? What am I going to get out of it? One of the things I really learned from Strauss was that there's a quote unquote hedonistic defense of philosophy, you know, that philosophy offers you a great pleasure. So it's like some people see yeah. pleasure and if they can be convinced that philosophy is a source of pleasure, that'll attract them to it. But one of the things that's unique about philosophy is that it's like, you don't, you don't, it's accompanied by these incredible pleasures. That's true. You don't, pleasure is not the criterion that gets people into it, but then they discover that it's, it has these specific charms, you know, and that charm of communing with friends over a thousand, over thousands of years who feel like they're, they can be closer to you than some people who are very close to you. Cause there is something intimate about philosophy in that way. And the, and the pleasures are real and the charms are, uh, substantive. It's hard to convince people of that. I think at the outset, it's something you have to kind of experience as you go into it. So one of the things about philosophy that doesn't, how could you put it, generalize, like you can't easily pitch it to everybody is because it with it does withhold some of its greatest pleasures for the people who are like willing to meet it halfway, you know, or willing to go where it is. Some things they'll go like exactly all the way where you are, you know, and they'll just like drop the benefits in your lap or whatever. Mm -hmm. Philosophy, you have to, you do have to, uh, people do have to make an effort, you know, to like to get into it, to understand it, to move towards it. But uh, by all accounts, uh, it's worth it. You know, it's worth it, not just for the way that it can have a practical benefit, but for these other sort of like harder to communicate, but much more genuine benefits, uh, which are amazing. I mean, the, the experience, it's funny sometimes for some people like 500 years ago is a long time, which in some way it is, right? If it's like, wow, this thing's 500 years old. Like if you found a coin in your backyard that was 500 years old, 
that would probably be awesome. You know, some people find a coin that's like 50 years old and that's awesome. So you read Plato, Plato's long time ago, you know, long, long, long time ago. Uh, and it's amazing. And then you just, if you discuss it with people, that is so enriching as well. I mean, here's another book of Plato's, The Laws, a, a truly amazing work. Okay. The first line of this book, the Athenian stranger is asked, a guy from Athens is asking two other old Greeks, a Cretan and a Spartan, who do you say gave you your laws, a God or a man? Like the very first question of the book, does, do laws come from God or from man? What's the role of the divine in legislation? And how do we think about divinely revealed codes of law? And if God was a lawgiver, what would he try to aim at? Like all the virtues or some of the virtues, and they talk about war and civil war and foreign war. And it's like, if you're a thinking human being who cares about the human condition, these gifts, this is like, would you, I would rather find this than dig up 20 gold bars in my backyard or like a 500 year old coin. This is the, this is all, this is the coin right here. It's like, it's a treasure, but people, again, it's, it's not like a bar of gold. You sort of know, you know, that you have it or like a diamond, you sort of know, like you can, or you scratch a lottery ticket and you know, but if you have a book of Plato in front of you, you may not know that you're sitting in front of a treasure, you know, and the job of somebody who's introducing the people to philosophy is to like, give that, you know, let gradually let them see that it's a book of treasure. And the, again, the easiest way that I know of is to connect it to something that they care about and show that it's a articulation of it that is profound. So one of the transitioning a little bit away from, you know, our indulgence in the beauty of philosophy and the joy of studying philosophy. Um, one of the things that sort of concerned me and is, is kind of the impetus for uh, for the Hacking State project, um, and, but was sort of, you know, developing many years prior to Hacking State, even when I was doing my previous show, this is something that was on my mind, um, is the philosophy of technology. Now, I'm not a Heideggerian. I'm not a Heideggerian sc scholar. Um, but I did get introduced to Heidegger initially through his essay um, on the question concerning technology, which I've covered myself. Um, and was which was actually another um, recall to Justin Murphy. It was actually sent to me originally by him via email. He sent me an email out of the blue one day and said, hey, I think you're interested in philosophy of technology. Here's this Heidegger essay you might want to read. And I actually sat on it for a while and did not read it. And then eventually found it again and was like, OK, I should probably read this. And um, what I wanted to say was that, um, first of all, if you're trying to get a handle on philosophy of technology, that's a great way to a, a great place to start, because Heidegger uh, himself has a, a very piercing way of considering these problems. And he's writing this in, I believe, the 1950s, and he's trying to assess the nature of technology. Um, and one of the things that I'm sure comes up a lot, especially because you're working with a lot of people in tech or adjacent to tech is concerns about technology itself, um, what it's doing to us, whether or not it is uh, changing the human condition in a fundamental way or enabling us, uh, enabling us to be better or worse versions of ourselves. These are all questions that people I think are, are really beginning to take seriously. And um, I just find myself continually going back to that Heidegger, Heidegger essay um, and, and wishing that I understood it better and also wishing maybe that it had been a little bit longer <laughs> because the answer Heidegger gives us 
um, which we're not going to go through the whole argument right now. It's it's quite complicated, um, is somewhat unsatisfactory, but it does point towards a a way of rediscovering our own humanity, sort of as the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, and I jumped into this uh, digression not to ask you about the question concerning technology, but to ask you about Heidegger as your opening to Dugan, as you mentioned previously, or or really Dugan's presentation of Heidegger, which then got you back back into Dugan. Um, what is it about Heidegger? Uh, D- Dugan said in your interview that he's sort of the prince, the prince of philosophy. Plato is the king. Dugan, uh, sorry, Heidegger would be the prince. Why why is Heidegger the prince of philosophy? And and are you thinking of philosophy in these episodic terms? Or are you more partial to Strauss's view that it's sort of just an ongoing pedagogy? You know, for me, it is, uh, it's an open question. And it's one that I wrote about in my dissertation at the University of Toronto, which was published as a book called Beginning with Heidegger. Mm-hmm. And in the book, Beginning with Heidegger, I do contrast, for example, Strauss and Dugan, not only those two, but let's say those two in particular for the purpose of our conversation to try to see how to make sense and how to work, how to make sense of, and how to work through the dispute over the nature of philosophy. Is it historical in the way that Heidegger sees it, or is it eternal, let's say in the way that Strauss sees it, the debate over the significance of history for philosophy is at the heart of a lot of disputes. Not only the one that Strauss, we can construct between Strauss and Heidegger, but also, for example, the one that Strauss had with Kojev in his debate with Kojev and on tyranny. Mm-hmm. So I try to articulate as best I can and understand for myself as best I can what's at stake in the dispute and who got the kind of, like, for example, I don't think that Strauss in his presentations of Heidegger is quite as, uh, how could you put this? Even though Strauss for me is an absolute authority in the interpretation of the history of political philosophy, I have reasons to doubt that his interpretation of Heidegger is adequate. Uh, so that's something I write about in my beginning with Heidegger book. Heidegger, I mean, we have many different starting points, but I'll tell you what my starting points are. Number one, mm-hmm. Heidegger is an authority for Strauss. I mean, Strauss said Heidegger is the greatest thinker of our time. So it's absolutely recognized as the thinker for us, you know, like the profoundest interpreter prior maybe to Strauss himself of the possibility of a return to Greek philosophy. The idea that we never really did understand Plato and Aristotle because we never had an adequate interpretation of them because too much was presupposed. I mean, Strauss credits Heidegger with opening the door to a return to Plato and Aristotle. He says it in several different essays. Heidegger showed the possibility of a genuine philosophical return to Plato and Aristotle. He showed that they had never been mastered. So we start with the fact that Heidegger is authoritative for Strauss, but he's authoritative for several other philosophers who think in a completely different direction than Strauss. He's authoritative for Derrida. He's authoritative for Rorty. He's authoritative for Dugan. Those are the four people I cover in my book. Mm -hmm. So how is it that one figure stands at the center and at the heart, everybody looks to him and acknowledges that he's accomplished something uniquely uh, profound. And yet each of them has an incompatible interpretation of the significance of his work, both philosophically and politically. That's my starting puzzle in some sense. And uh, 
in case it's interesting, the moment that this became configured in my mind as a puzzle was when I was translating Dugan's first book on Heidegger at the same time as a master's student at the University of Toronto at the time. And I was taking a course as well on um, political theology, basically leftist political theology. So like I was in, in a class roughly of leftist thinkers influenced by Heidegger at the same time as I was translating Dugan's book on Heidegger. And so at one and the same moment, I saw the deep similarities and dissimilarities in these two reception histories. Mm. Uh, Heidegger was, uh, Dugan was putting an emphasis on what he called Heidegger's middle period writings, including this one right here, Contributions to Philosophy of the Event. He said the key to Heidegger is those middle period writings. The key to Heidegger is the notion of another beginning of philosophy. That's why Dugan's first Heidegger book is called Martin Heidegger, The Philosophy of Another Beginning. He puts the idea of another beginning front and center. The French Heideggerians, they didn't have it on their radar at all. So that's why I say they stopped at the end of metaphysics. They liked the idea of an end because what happens at the end? Somehow everything falls apart. Yeah. And you can, you can use the metaphysics. I mean, you can use sort of the philosophy of the end of metaphysics, socially, politically, morally, artistically, but it's a pulling apart. It's a dissipation. Whereas the idea of another beginning, sheltering, gathering, grounding for them, that's like, that's all, that's how fascists talk. Fascists talk about grounding and sheltering and preserving. And that's like, so they, they're anti rebuilding. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So for the French Heideggerians, it's like the philosophy of another beginning is Heidegger's Nazification of philosophy, which we don't Mm -hmm. like. But his idea of an end of metaphysics, that's like a liberalization of philosophy, which we love, you know, because then we can pull apart absolutes and stuff like that. So when I saw those two things together, I realized there was a puzzle here. And then you add in the fact that, as I mentioned, Heidegger was such an, such an authority. Authority is the wrong word. Heidegger was recognized as a great by Strauss. So that allowed me to just build a, a field of problems. You know, there's no, I can't say, so your friends who are looking for uh, solutions as opposed to problems, they won't like this, but I wanted the statement of the puzzle, you know, how is this one philosopher at the heart of all of these disputes? And they all take them in different directions. The easy answer is like, it's all arbitrary, but that, you know, rejecting the easy answer, it's like, no, quite a bit is at stake. And there's Mm -hmm. a lot of interplay between people's moral and political opinions and their willingness to have philosophy lead the way. Cause it's like, if philosophy takes you into an anti-democratic direction, do you go there? Or do you force it into another direction? That kind of thing. Yeah, well, I think the one of the interesting facets at the heart of this disagreement is uh, that if you find yourself in search of a solution because you are too impatient to ask questions, then you are presuming to know where you are already. And one of the distinctions uh, I would say between, you know, the philosophically inclined and the not so philosophically inclined is that the philosophically inclined are not making the assumption that we necessarily know where we are. And sort of the the entire theme of our discussion about Strauss and about Heidegger and Dugan as well uh, has as 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 an underlying current that the history of Western philosophy is not solved. It's not fully understood. And we, we may, in fact, not even know where we are yet. Yeah, I think that is uh, important. Uh, the idea of place in relationship to where we are, like, you know, in relationship to thinking and its location, I'll give you a great example. 
Plato's cave. So in Plato's cave, you where are we? Well, you could be at the bottom of the cave looking at shadows. You could be on the way up the cave, but not quite out of it. You could be out of it, but not quite adjusted, you know, to everything that you see out of it. You could be on your way back down. You know, maybe you went up to the fire and then you ran back down to the shadows, which Plato describes as part of the cave allegory. So it's like, even if you take the simple figure of the cave allegory and we ask, where are we at any part of that process? There are several different possible answers on our way up, on our way down. Maybe we don't even know that we're in, in a cave. And then we add to that Strauss's very nice elaboration where he says, in fact, Western man today is in a cave beneath the cave. So where are we? We are beneath Plato's cave. And we need to make an effort just to get back up to the state of natural ignorance, the state of natural ignorance, which is the proper starting point for a genuine philosophical ascent. So he says, modern man, technological man, technological society has tried to solve the problem of the ignorance of the cave by digging down. So where are we? We're in a hole. We're in a mm -hmm. hole that we've dug that's even deeper than the one that we're in by nature, you know, according to uh, the ignorance that's just inborn with us or in us. So I think that's very helpful. In fact, I would say it's surprising that topography, like the idea of place and configuration of places should be so essentially bound to philosophical thinking. And yet it seems to be, you know, like, again, if we take Plato's cave allegory as sort of the most profound and penetrating image of philosophical education that we have access to, it's the fact that it's spatial is crucial. Up, down, in, out, all of those dimensions are there. So yeah, I think you're right. And there's quite a lot, I think, to uh, to the observation that a philosopher does have to try to figure out not just who am I, but wh where where am I in my thinking? What what am I? What do I stand on? And incidentally, one of the things I think Heidegger helps us to see is all of the all of the sort of um, grounds that we take for granted. Like I say, mm -hmm. it doesn't make any sense that someone might say it doesn't make any sense to ask where where I am. I know where I am. I am, and then they'll fill in the blank. Like you know, they'll fill in the blank. I am in the year, so they'll like their their reference point will be temporal, or I am it'll be evolutionary or it'll be bodily or it'll be this, or it'll be that, you know, it's like all of the possible places where you can stand. And the beautiful thing about philosophy is you begin to try to see more, you know, you don't just take for granted the first answer that comes to, uh, comes to mind. Hmm. So I asked you about Heidegger because of Dugan's presentation of Heidegger and sort of the configuration that clicked in your brain when you were studying uh, Heidegger's uh, in the two realms, in the classroom and on your own doing translations of Dugan's work. Um, I won't ask you to recount the entire story, uh, storied history of yourself and the trouble that you got into for studying Dugan and for translating Dugan. That's out there. We've briefly touched on it. I'm sure that you have other content related to it out there uh, in many other interviews. Um, but what initially drew you in to Dugan? Why did you decide to take up this extremely controversial and and, and now in some ways even more controversial since the start of the war, um, philosophers? Yes. Yeah, so my first exposure to him was an article about him. And the article resonated because 
it said, I mean, it began with an anecdote and the, I mean, it began with like a story, you know, and the story was that, uh, the story was that Dugan had been expelled from Ukraine for an anti-Ukrainian position. Like he'd been expelled from the country. And in response, the Kremlin expelled the Ukrainian ambassador, something like that. Okay. So this was like how that article opened. This is my first exposure to Dugan. And he was, you know, in the start of that article, he was called like a Russian philosopher or something. And what was weird to me was that you would expel an ambassador in response for the expulsion of a philosopher. Right. Like that's weird, you know, like seems out of proportion. It's exactly, it seems out of proportion. So the idea that he was somehow important enough of a philosopher that you would exchange like an ambassador for him in a tit for tat of expulsions was kind of, kind of intriguing to me. And then at the time I've, I have mentioned this in other interviews, I'll say it here as well. At the time I had an interest in mysticism and uh, he was described in this article as somebody who had a background in like mystic circles or esoteric circles or occult circles. And so the first one was like philosopher King figure. Okay. Like the, somehow the Kremlin has the back of this philosopher who's somehow so influential. That was intriguing. Then the mysticism, that was intriguing. And then at the time I was also actually learning uh, and intending to learn Russian in order to understand the history of Russian philosophy. There was another guy that I was more interested in, Vladimir Solovyov. Uh, there's a character in Brothers Karamazov who's patterned after him, Alyosha. Uh, but this article was like also saying that if you want to understand Russia today, you really need to understand Dugan. So there were three things. There was like my interest in Russia, check. My interest in mysticism, check. And my interest in the figure of a philosopher king, check. So that article, it did its job. It piqued my interest and it made me look for more. And then the first thing that I found when I was looking for more was a presentation that he gave. It was a five-minute video, okay? Five-minute video on the idea of the fourth political theory. And I, I listened to that video I don't know whether I need to say the basic idea. If anybody's familiar with Dugan, they will have heard it before. If they're familiar with me, they will have heard well, it before. Well, please just give us a, a brief summary and then maybe- we'll the, Here's the, the, the nutshell is very simple. The 20th century was a war of ideologies, liberalism, communism, and fascism. So he called those the first, second, and third political theory. Liberalism and its variants, communism and its variants, fascism and its variants. And you know, fascism was defeated. Then you had the bipolar Cold War world between liberalism and communism. Communism was defeated. Liberalism was the last ideology standing. But what do you do if you want to oppose liberalism, neither on the basis of the second political theory, communism, nor on the basis of the third political theory, fascism slash Nazism? Uh, so he says, it's like all thought seems to have been exhausted by the view that the three political theories are all there is, liberalism, communism, fascism. And he says, uh, if you want to reject liberalism, not on the basis of those other theories, we're going to begin by just stating fourth political theory as like expanding the scope of what could be thought, okay, beyond those three theories. So it sounds trivial, but I'll tell you why it resonated with me. I mean, maybe it doesn't sound trivial. Maybe people are like, what about anarchism? What about this? What about that? But I'll tell you what resonated with me. Uh, I was, I think I, I was an undergraduate student and the, this was like an instant, you know, we said how you can collapse the distance between us and Plato when one thing hits and resonates, right? So something that Dugan said immediately resonated with me, which was this. A lot of things, including my interest in Strauss, were being called fascist. I was at the University of British Columbia. Okay. I had professors tell me Strauss is a fascist. I also have an interest in uh, 
is the project of Israeli statehood. Okay. So Zionism. And I was like, that's fascist. And when I heard Dugan's model, the thing, the light bulb that went off was this. Oh yeah. Who gets called a fascist? If you're not a liberal and you're not a communist, they call you a fascist. Cause that's right. all they know. That's all they know. And I was like, wow, that checks out. That just checks out. I mean, that's true. If you're not a liberal and you're not a communist, you're assumed to be fascist. But Strauss, for example, not a liberal in the full-blown sense, definitely not a communist and clearly not a fascist, despite some things that he wrote in his youth about fascism. Okay. Or again, in my view, the state of Israel, not fully liberal. Okay. It has liberal elements, not fully communist, although it has socialist elements, clearly not fascist either, in my view, although, you know, the founders of the Supreme Court there studied Schmidt. So the point was, it's like, yeah, I think a lot of people, I said to myself, are using the three political theory models when they see the world. It's just that what light bulb went off. Five minute speech. So I so searched a, them up. There's a category error, right? Which is a, yeah, there's a exactly there's no other like, bucket to put you in. A hundred percent. No other bucket. So I was like, how can everybody it's not possible that you know Strauss is a fascist and everybody's a fascist? Like, come on. Clearly, so clearly somewhere they've made a mistake. And this, this, it was like a, such a simple and clear cut presentation. And it just, I said, yeah, that's for sure. People are making that mistake. So I looked them up. I went to his Russian Wikipedia page at the time. This was 2011, his Russian Wikipedia page. And I saw that he had a book called the fourth political theory. So I had the article, then I had this five minute speech. And then I saw he had a book called the fourth political theory. As I say, I was an undergraduate at the time and I was learning Russian for philosophical purposes. So I proposed a translation project. I said, I want to learn a technical philosophical vocabulary in Russian. Here's a contemporary Russian philosopher that I just read about who interests me. I heard his speech on the fourth political theory. I see he's got a book on the fourth political theory. Why don't I just translate that? And then my supervisor at the time said, go for it. And so I started translating the fourth political theory. And the amazing thing was, Every time I would submit part of the translation to the supervisor, and you got to keep in mind, this was like at the exact time as Putin was announcing a Eurasian union and I'm translating Dugan's fourth political theory. And it was like a revelation. You know, I was bringing something into English that was hugely topical and interesting. And so my supervisor said to me at some point in the process, have you ever thought about reaching out to Dugan to get this published? Which had never crossed my mind in a million years until he suggested it. Then I'm like, no, I haven't. So you should. So I did. And we did. Uh, I reached out to him and uh, long story, you know, the book got published. Yeah. Somebody else in Russia was translating at the same time. So our translation was put together and released. And then I just continued because everything of his that I was reading and translating, whether I agreed with every sentence of it or not is a different issue, but it always had something thought provoking to offer that helped me to make a better sense of the state of affairs internationally, globally. And that gave me something to think about philosophically other than what, to my mind, was the overzealously liberal mood of philosophizing in the universities, which, again, were either liberal or critical of liberalism from the left. And I'm like, OK, this is a research project. You know, I have an intelligent anti-liberal thinker on the right who is a key to understanding Russia at a time when Russia is becoming more important in the world. And he's referring in many cases to the same sources as my other leading light, Strauss was. Both of them take Heidegger seriously. Both of them take Plato seriously. Both of them take Schmidt seriously. 
you know? And so it was like, okay, here we go. And uh, that was fascinating for me. It continues to be fascinating for me. And that's just how I pursued it. I mean, that's, that's sort of how it put itself together. Do you think that Alexander Dugan is a dangerous philosopher? Well, yes, but again, it's one of those things where we have to see what makes a philosopher dangerous. You know, Socrates was a dangerous philosopher. What's our evidence? He was accused of corrupting the youth, not believing in the gods of the city and all of that. And he was killed. He wasn't killed for being uh, not dangerous. You know, he was killed because he, among other reasons, seemed to have pulled the rug out under the feet of people who were potentially tyrannical or, you know, shaking their faith in what the city believed that they should uh, worship without further ado, you know? So somehow like there's something inherently dangerous about philosophy properly done, which is why Costin uh, Alamario's book, Selective Breeding and the Birth of Philosophy reminds us of the kinship between philosophy and tyranny. So that's like at one level, the essence of philosophy is somehow dangerous. Uh, you know, with all of the qualifiers, it's not like it's as dangerous as a, you know, armed psycho on the street or something like that, but it's dangerous in a certain way. Mm -hmm. But Dugan is dangerous to the Western liberal consensus, if there is one in another way, you know, which is that he's like an avowed enemy of Western political modernity. And he's somebody who's trying to win followers in the fight against Western political modernity. And he's somebody who inspires concretely, you know, political movements that are dedicated in their own way to the destruction of Western political modernity. And uh, in that sense, he's, he's even, he's much more conspicuously dangerous than somebody like Socrates who never tried to fight an ideological war at a global scale using a uh, mass propaganda. You know what I'm saying? So there's like, there's a difference in the way that philosophers can be dangerous. Um, he's one who's dangerous in the sense that he, as I say, has his sights aimed and trained on Western hegemonic uh, political modernity as he sees it and is willing to use all of his intellectual resources uh, at the very least to deal it a death blow. So I can see why, for example, the professors of mine who didn't like him would regard him as an enemy politically. That's fine. That makes sense. He would also regard them as enemies politically. I would only go the extra step and say, we can still learn from our enemies. Uh, and I don't think that philosophy uh, maps in the same way in terms of friends and enemies as politics does necessarily, you know, like you can feel that kinship that you feel, as you say, with, um, philosophers of old, I think even when they write from within an enemy country or, you know, or they write, you know what I'm saying? Like there's something yeah. about, there's a sort of kinship that transcends. I mean, Derrida has a book called politics of friendship. In my view, the peak of the politics of friendship is the uh, the meeting of the minds between the philosophers, even if they happen to belong to enemy civilizations or enemy countries or enemy blocks or enemy armies. It's that like recognition um, across political communities that there's something valuable and something thought provoking uh, at stake. But yeah, if we take the philosophy out of the picture, he's a you know he's an enemy propagandist to the Western world. And in that sense, you can almost understand why he's like censored and banned and put on a uh, sanctions lists and, you know, sometimes a direct target of political violence. Like people may know that his daughter was assassinated in what was reportedly an attempt on his life. So all of that makes sense in the logic of uh, basic political enmity. 
but he's still somebody that I think we can learn from and that we should learn from. Yeah. And I, I think the other interesting fact about it is that he's someone that is naturally appealing or at least curious to people that are in the West that are not enemies of the West, but are disgruntled with the current status quo of the, let's say, political economy or the the regime machinations that are under underway. There's a sense in which, um, for lack of a better term, dissidents in the West, even though we're not anything near as destitute as like Soviet dissidents might have been or, or dissidents in other regimes, we're relatively safe, um, are going to seek out anyone that has a strong and forceful intellectual critique of the current system. Um, sure. Even though they they may be patriotic in their actual sentiments. Yeah, that is indisputable. And it does require that people um, navigate this operation delicately. How do you learn from somebody whose criticisms are at times not just intriguing, but let's say on the money, you know, like seemingly putting into words what everybody can sense and feel who's looking at the situation with some dissatisfaction and reconcile that with the fact that at another level, you can't go along with him all the way on every question and every issue. So it like it requires a little bit of subtlety to entertain and to value correctly, to est estimate correctly, a criticism of one's time and place and not necessarily to buy fully into, you know, an American patriot can learn from Dugan's criticism of American global liberalism for sure. And there are many who have, and there are many who have discussed it. You know, we mentioned earlier, I was on Warren McIntyre's program discussing Dugan's fourth political theory and countless examples of, I think, well-meaning Americans who don't like the current regime, learning from people like Dugan about how to articulate its limitations, but who wouldn't want America to become Russia and who don't want to throw off all that's good about America and who wouldn't buy into all of the other elements of the criticism if there is one like that. So that requires, as I say, some, you know, yeah. You have to be able to do the delicate operation of accepting a criticism as far as it goes and not necessarily farther. But one of the great things is that, you know, Dugan is a, a thoughtful, erudite analyst of political affairs internationally and domestically. I think that he's really helped people to formulate in a theoretical way some of what they're dissatisfied by in their domestic politics, for example, the book Great Awakening versus Great Reset. It's a nice, short, tracked-like manifesto that puts its finger on a lot of the movements and a lot of the phenomena that people, well-meaning American patriot types, would reject as uh, you know, the machinations of a globalist elite. It's like analysis that is spot on in many cases. So that's true. But same, I mean, you can also say people like Carl Schmidt. In other words, it's not a problem that's unique to Dugan, right? Mm. Carl Schmidt has an analysis of the crisis of, uh, of uh, Weimar Constitution. Profound, useful analysis that teaches book legality and legitimacy in the school. Does it mean that if we accept his criticisms, we have to go all in on Schmidt's unique political history and every other solution that he would have provided and everything he said about anything ever? No. We, my, my view is, like I once wrote a paper which summarized in some sense, even in the title, a task, an intellectual task that I think is important and will become more important than that people should take seriously. 
not that they don't, but that they should continue to do uh, more and more, which is this. I call it the virtues of right-wing anti-liberalism. Right-wing anti-liberalism, meaning we're not talking about socialist communist critiques of liberalism. We're not talking about the critique of capitalist inequality on the basis of social justice, egalitarianism, right-wing anti-liberalism. Why the virtues? Because roughly people know the vices. Somehow automatically people are aware of the vices of right-wing anti-liberalism. You know, the idea of like genocidal chauvinism and uh, somehow like a narrow, brutal um, interpretation of the world that just is, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, social Darwinism. The vices of right-wing, yeah. Roughly, I think people have a picture of the vices of right-wing anti-liberalism. But they don't have an adequate account of the virtues, of the several virtues, possibly of the incompatible virtues. And even that formulation, the virtues of right-wing anti-liberalism, it forces us to think through. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because we're so used to only saying bad things about right-wing anti-liberals that we have to put that whole field. I mean, I, this formed for me pretty early on in my graduate studies, this particular thesis, we have to put the whole field of right-wing anti-liberalism back onto the spectrum, back onto the radar in order with some degree of accuracy and precision and nuance to sort of map that territory out. Schmidt is not equivalent to Dugan is not equivalent to Strauss is not equivalent to Vandenbroek. You know what I mean? Is not equivalent to De Maestra. And yet they all live in this part of the spectrum, not on the other part of the spectrum. So it's like mapping that out is very important. And then seeing what can we take that's good and what should we omit that's bad. It's like very elementary, but to even go there has been so difficult. It's been difficult because it's been rendered uh, off limits. You know, if you show an interest in right-wing anti-liberalism, you're called a Nazi and a fascist only to discredit you and not to describe you. And the discrediting makes it less and less likely that you'll ever have an adequate grasp of what is presented there. And by the way, Plato sometimes gets slotted into that picture. I was so I was just like, going to say, there's like basically no chance that uh, Plato would even be published today. <laughs> um, exactly. Know, Karl Popper and so forth, like he would just be immediately, yeah. this is unacceptable. For sure. I heard... Uh, anecdotally, again, I don't know how widespread this is. Maybe people who are listening will have a better idea, especially if you have listeners in academia. But I remember hearing when I was at the University of Toronto, or slightly maybe sometime after I left, that uh, there was some student who, let's put it this way, there was a deep suspicion. I heard about a deep suspicion towards a student just because they showed a genuine interest in Plato's laws, and Plato's laws is not a liberal book. I mean, it's true. Plato's Laws is not a liberal book. But for a student who expresses interest in Plato's laws to be like brushed, you know, with the brush of suspicion, and that's like, that is just too much. You know, that's beyond the pale. So that just shows you that on one hand, you have this field, as I say, the virtues of right-wing anti-liberalism that maybe has something to offer at the very least analytically. Like, I, I believe that my work on Dugan has proven its uh, has proven to be a contribution in understanding Russia's war with the West in the 10 years since I started it. I mean, I have evidence for that. I have people who are not just nobodies, but people who are somebodies in the analysis of world affairs reaching out to me and asking me to brief them on Dugan. You know, so it's like very obviously it has been a helpful lens in which to understand, if not to predict for sure to understand 
something about Russia's position vis-a-vis the West. But now imagine that it had been, I mean, my research on Dugan, yeah, I faced some challenges at the university, but still it could have been much, much worse. Imagine I had never been allowed to, you know, to translate or to publish or to release or to do anything. There would be such a blind spot. Now I'm not saying I did something incredible. No, I did something pretty like modest, but it still illuminated a relevant part of contemporary politics. So now imagine the rest of the unilluminated realm of right-wing anti-liberalism that's unilluminated because yeah. people are not allowed to go there. And again, I include Plato in that. And how much of the world now can people not see because they've been deliberately blinded in being forbidden to consult the sources that they could learn from? It's like- uh, It's the cave totally, beneath the cave all over again. It's the cave beneath the cave, 100%, 100%. You know, So we have a task of reversing that descent, not just digging a hole, gradually being able to see more. And uh, another thing I would say, you know, we started off this conversation where I was telling people about video, right? How going into video could be helpful. Another thing I want to add here, if anybody knows a second language, translation is something I would recommend. There are books in your language, if you speak a second language, or, you know, if your first language is not English, there are untranslated books that would be a contribution to English speaking readers, if only they were aware of them. They can't be made aware of them unless somebody translates them and then shows their significance. So I recommend if anybody wants to uh, take me up on this, if you speak a second language and there's some author you resonate with who's not translated, translate it, okay? I mean, yeah. I, I, I mean, I say? I, the, Dugan, the Dugan thing has been huge for me personally and I think for the field that I was addressing and it would not, you know, not that I was the only person translating, but like the translators are the ones who made possible an acquaintance with Dugan's thought. Uh, also, he does interviews in English, but you know what I mean? The book, the familiarity with his books is only because people were translating them. So that's my other recommendation besides videos. If you do a second language, translate something. Yeah. And uh, I'll just uh, say that me and some other people are in some interesting discussions about uh, a technological solution to this translation problem, getting more of the world's text translated into English, at least to start. Um but uh, maybe you'll hear more on that uh, in the future. It's it's very early stages right now. Um, I wanted to, just because I would be remiss uh, in the time that we have left to not mention it, given that uh, you brought it up, uh, briefly ask you about Kostin Alamaru and his book, uh, Selective Breeding and the Birth of Philosophy, which uh, which you, you did a review on. You did a nice, succinct 30-minute review that uh, that did very well, and uh, I did a review as well um, in partnership with Stephen Pimentel, who writes for Palladium. Um, and uh, actually, admittedly, I haven't watched your review yet, but I've seen the numbers on it, and they're quite good. Um, and uh, you know, you brought him up because you mentioned briefly the sort of tension that exists between the potential for tyranny and philosophy. And again, this entire discussion has sort of been about um, not only the value of philosophy, but also the danger of philosophy or the perceived danger of philosophy to various regimes, to society, or even to people's own uh, sense of their own certainty about the world. Um, and so given that I haven't seen your review yet, I wanted to just take the opportunity to ask you um, what did you think about the core thesis of the book um, that 
philosophy and tyranny are in some ways twins arising out of the same seed, which is the awareness of, of nature and its distinction from convention. Yeah, I think that it is a, uh, I think it's a solid thesis in that sense. Both the philosopher and the tyrant are concerned with the preservation of something that under the domination of convention is uh, destroyed or, you know, the genuine nature, the, the potential philosopher is how Strauss sees it. And um, the person who could become a potential philosopher is the same as the person who could become a potential tyrant in some sense, because they both have that extra something, that extra vitality or that extra passionarity or that uh, extra desire, um, that extra nature. I mean, one of the things I learned from, from uh, Costin's book is to think about nature as the vital as a certain vitality to say that a person has more nature i don't think i would have used that formulation before but uh, i was pretty convinced in his pindar chapter that that is like a usage an aristocratic usage before the philosophical conceptualization of it you know that the what we say is like having more vitality could be stated as having more nature or as you know when i when i did my re statement of it i thought of it in terms of again the cave allegory as a person having more being you know, the, just like the ideas are the more beingful beings, there are people who are more beingful people. They're the ones who are more, they are more truly, they exist more actually, you know, they just really are somehow in a, in a more intense way or in a more intense sense. So he showed those usages in Pindar, which I thought were pretty interesting. And then the idea that both the philosopher and the tyrant are concerned with that. I mean, there's more to the thesis. There's also that philosophy needs tyranny. So it's not just that the philosopher and the tyrant both have an interest in a nature that would otherwise be destroyed by convention, or that would be, uh, uh, if not destroyed, then, you know, um, suffocated, smothered, smothered, yeah, suffocated. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. It's also that if for philosophy to accomplish what it wants to accomplish, it has to exercise a tyrannical political rule. And if it doesn't, then it's it lets itself be smothered by uh, by some other kind of tyranny, the tyranny of convention or the tyranny of the mediocre. I think there's something to that as well. Uh, for sure, there is in Plato. For sure, there is in Nietzsche. And it's appropriate to remind people about that. I would say two other things. In my mind, the aim of his book. There's a lot to say about it. Okay, it's a it's a yeah. dense and it's complicated a complicated argument. Exactly. But to say two things. The aim of his book, in my view, is similar to the aim of other books that want to remind people of what philosophy is. It's like a defense of philosophy at a time where philosophy maybe has become uh, toothless. You know, so yes. Heidegger wants to remind people about what philosophy is at a time where language has lost its essential saying power. Strauss wants to remind people of what philosophy is at a time that philosophy has become equivalent to the sciences or somehow it's lost its unique privileged place of um, uh, importance, you know, the philosophical supremacy. So I would say that he also is trying to revitalize and remind people of what philosophy essentially is. So some people asked me in my video, like, or they commented, like he has something to do with, uh, his book is not primarily about 
teaching people when to have children or when not to have children. You know, it's not like, a, it's not like they a get, they get caught eugenics. up in the title. They get really caught up. They in do. The title. That's obviously effectively designed uh, to trip people up in that way. But the key thing is to remind people about the genuine nature of philosophy in my yeah. view. And, you know, in order to do that, he has to restate the thesis of its kinship with tyranny. So uh, that's there. And then the other thing I would say, as I think about his thesis, as I think about his claims, and in particular, the importance of biology and the body, which is something that he shares not only with Pindar at the beginning, but with Nietzsche at the end, uh, just like I felt when reading Bronze Age Mindset on the basis of the sources that I know and the arguments that I uh, entertain and consider important, I still see the Heideggerian alternative to this Nietzschean presentation. I mean, Nietzschean slash Platonic, even if you like, because he does bring Nietzsche and Plato together yeah. in those chapters. But I still see the Heideggerian alternative because he for Heidegger, the key question is somehow not nature in the same way as it is for Pindar, Plato, Nietzsche. And it's not the body or the bodily vitality as it is for you know Pindar, Nietzsche. And yet, clearly, we have to entertain it uh, as a work of philosophy, but one that's primarily oriented towards a specific interpretation of being that is meant to be distinct from the Platonic and Nietzschean version. So whenever I, as I was reading Selective Reading and learning about the relationship of philosophy and tyranny as you presented it there, uh, in particular, like I said, I didn't really know the Pindar elements before, and there are other parts of his argument that were new to me. Uh, I still think of the staging of a confrontation between Kostin's Nietzschean view of philosophy. And he himself says that Nietzsche is going to be the, the most important philosopher of the future and the Heideggerian alternative. In my view, that's like a philosophical project that is well worth undertaking. And that I think is going to be part of the future of the uh, right-wing dissidents. You know, the thoughtful right-wing dissidents who are attracted to Bronze Age pervert, who are attracted to Kostin, who are attracted to Nietzschean thinking, at some point, they will need, in my view, to stage the philosophical encounter between Nietzsche and Heidegger in a way that sort of uh, tries to, doesn't just take for granted that Nietzsche is the superior alternative of the two. So that's the only other thing I'll say. I liked it. I thought it was good, well-written, rousing, um, entertaining, instructive, and uh, in many senses, true. And I recommend that people read it. Well, you left us with a, a very juicy puzzle puzzle to consider. I'll have to think about that for a long time. Um, well, Michael, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, having you on the show once again. And I, I, I believe we've done a great job of just giving people a, a tour of things uh, related to philosophy, the school, uh, your interest in Dugan, Heidegger, especially. Um, before I let you go, um, what is coming next from the school and uh, what can people expect to see from you in the future? So the school is moving towards a membership model. And the idea is that instead of selling individual courses to students who just watch the courses on their own, which is what some people had been doing in the school, I now will be offering uh, all access membership to all the courses. And the membership is going to include several private sessions with me. And it's gonna allow me to do more sort of workshops and seminars and events, hopefully culminating in in-person events at some point, which is aspirational for me since everything is online right now. Uh, more towards building a community of thinkers who want the comprehensive inquiry 
as opposed to just a particular course and allowing me again to offer more uh, more of my time one-on-one -on -one and in small group seminars. So that's something the school is moving towards gradually uh, as we end this year. And then I'll also say if anybody has been sort of intrigued, but isn't like all in on Strauss, Heidegger and all of that, but is like the interest in philosophy has been peaked. I have a online introduction to philosophy at philosophyintro.com. And it's like four lessons delivered by email that starts with what we discussed earlier, like connecting to what people's pre-existing philosophical questions are, even if they wouldn't call them philosophical questions. So I encourage people to go to philosophyintro.com if that's something that they would like. But yeah, the direction of the school, Norman School 2.0, or the next iteration is this membership model. I'm very excited by, I have some new members this month and uh, it's great talking to intelligent people about the way these books relate to one another and to our lives and to our situation is just extremely satisfying. I'm getting great feedback and uh, knock on wood, it's going to keep going like this. Well, that's great to hear. All right. The incomparable Michael Millerman, everybody. Thank you.